All right, hopefully you all have your Bibles. If you will turn with me back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 47. We are going to finish out chapter 47 and walk through all of Genesis chapter 48. So Genesis chapter 47, and the title of today's Bible study is God Will Be With You. God Will Be With You. And so as we typically will do, if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 47, beginning in verse 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the days of Jacob The years of his life were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Chapter 48. After this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. And so he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, And it was told to Jacob, your son, Joseph, has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, To my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go in Ephra. And I buried her there on the way to Ephra, that is, Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, They are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. And so Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both. Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. 
And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand and moved it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son. I know he also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations." And so he blessed him that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers, Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. You may be seated. What final words will you share with your children? If you had one more day with your family, what would you say? According to biographer George Marsden, Jonathan Edwards spent his whole life preparing to die. He would often remind his congregation, those who were seated amongst him one Sabbath, that this might be the final Sabbath and you will be in the grave the next. In today's Bible passage, we are going to see and examine what Jacob said to Joseph and his two sons in this private conversation shortly before Jacob's death. And it will contain a request, a blessing, and an encouragement. We're going to divide today's passage into four sections. The first section will be God blesses Israel. That's in verse 27 and 28 of chapter 47. Next, we'll see Israel beseeches Joseph in verse 29 to 31. Then the third section, Israel blesses Joseph in chapter 48, verse 1 to 12. And then the fourth and final section, Israel encourages Joseph in verse 13 to 22. So if you still have your Bibles, turn back with me to chapter 47 
in verse 27. And notice how this first verse starts. It says that thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt. And look what happens. And they gained possessions in it. And if, for those of you who were with us last week, or I guess two weeks ago, you should immediately notice the contrast. Remember what happened to the Egyptians in the previous chapter. The Egyptians, because they needed food, first they spent all their money to buy food. So they had exhausted all their money. They then sell all their livestock to Pharaoh and to Joseph for food. And then they weren't done there because their land was worthless because of the severe famine. They voluntarily sell their land to Pharaoh and to Joseph. And then finally, they relinquished their autonomy. They voluntarily made themselves slaves for the purpose of food and sustenance to the king of Egypt. They lost their money, they lost their livestock, they lost their land, they lost, in a sense, their freedom. But what happens to Israel? It says here, they gained possessions. The New American Standard, they acquired property. Do you remember that when Joseph's brothers came to Pharaoh, they specifically told Pharaoh that they were shepherds. We didn't need a new job, we are shepherds. All we needed was land. And so Pharaoh gave Joseph's family the, the inheritance, in a sense, of the land of Goshen. And furthermore, Pharaoh told Joseph's brothers that since you are shepherds, if there's any livestock that I have, if you're able, you manage all of my livestock. Do you remember that? So understand the implication here. The Egyptians sell all their livestock and they give it all to Pharaoh. Pharaoh obviously is not a shepherd. They abhor taking care of sheep and livestock. And so what's Pharaoh going to do? Pharaoh's going to give all the livestock to who he is going to commission to be managers of his livestock. That is, by implication, Jacob's family, Joseph's brothers. And so now, with all this extra work, imagine they are now taking care of the majority of the livestock of the entire superpower of Egypt. <laughs> so while all of the people, the native citizens of Egypt, have lost everything, God blesses Israel. And in the midst of all that, they are accumulating property. They are gaining possessions. Well, not only that, back in verse 27, they gained possessions in it, in Goshen, and they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. We know that fertility, having children, that is a sovereign act of God. For any of you who have either struggled with 
fertility, dealt with infertility, or know someone, you know how true that is. That to open up the womb, to have children, multiple children, that is a work of God. And so we see here that God opens up the wombs of all the, the family, the relatives, the people of Israel. They were fruitful and they multiplied. And in the book of Genesis, to be fruitful and to multiply is the preeminent blessing that you can have. In Genesis chapter 1, when God had created Adam and Eve, what was one of the first things he told Adam and Eve? To be fruitful and multiply. After Noah came out of the ark with his sons, one of the first things that God told Noah and his sons was, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In Genesis chapter 28, you remember that when, J when Isaac is sending Jacob away from their home to flee from Esau to Padamaran, Isaac blesses Jacob. And the first thing he says is, God Almighty, El Shaddai, bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you. And in Genesis chapter 35, at loose, God, again, reiterates his blessing and his promise to Jacob. And he says in Genesis 35, 11, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai, be fruitful and multiply. So God blesses Israel. They, they accumulate all these possessions, all this property in a nation where everyone loses everything and they were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly. Notice one other thing here in verse 28. It says here that Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Notice the complete picture. Do you remember that Jacob had Joseph, his prized son, for 17 years before Joseph had been sold to slavery. And for the next 100 plus years, he thought he had lost Joseph. And notice this reunion that takes place. It was not a bedside reunion. I know some of you, I don't know if you ever think about this, but if you ever think about your death, if you were to you know, lie in your deathbed, I'm sure there would be different people that you would hope you would see one final time. When Jacob was saying that, I just need to see Joseph one more time and it is enough. But Jacob didn't just see Joseph one final time. He got to live 17 more years. Can you imagine that? Jacob's cup overflowed. He couldn't have asked for anything more. A few days, a few weeks, a few months, maybe a year or two. But 17 years, he had as much time with Joseph as he did when Joseph was first born. So God truly blessed Israel. 
spiritually and, 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 and physically with every earthly blessing you can imagine. And think with me, this is all because of God's goodwill. Nothing else. God has the prerogative to be able to bestow, to lavish blessing on whomever he chooses, and God chose to bless Israel. Let's see what happens next, though. It's interesting. Now that Jacob is nearing the end of his life, he is now not in the position of power anymore. He is ill, he is weak, he is dying. And so we see here now that Jacob, or Israel, beseeches Joseph. And if we continue in verse 29, notice it reads, And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, and notice the first thing he says, Put your hand under my thigh. Now, in modern day, we don't typically ask someone to put their hand <laughs> under your thigh. Not even most of your family members. <laughs> in Genesis chapter 24, Abraham commissioned his servant, Eleazar. He told his servant, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me, that you will go and find a wife for my son Isaac. The idea of putting your hand under the thigh is a physical act of swearing an oath, a promise, something that was legal, binding. Israel is telling Joseph, I've got something very important. And before I even tell you, you need to swear that you will do this. Put your hand under my thigh, swear an oath. But he does, or he says a second thing that's quite interesting. He says first, put your hand under my thigh. And then he says, promise to deal kindly and truly with me. The ESV, where we read the, ver or the adverb kindly, it is the same Hebrew verb that you should now be familiar with, hesed. Remember that word, hesed? It's the Hebrew word for loving kindness, steadfast love. So what, what Jacob is asking of, of Joseph is promise to give me hesed. When Abraham made his treaty with Abimelech, Back in Genesis chapter 21, Abimelech asked Abraham, Swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me, but as I have dealt kindly with you, that is, as I have shown hesed to you. After Joseph had interpreted the dream for the cupbearer, back in Genesis chapter 40, he tells the cupbearer, in a request, he pleads with the cupbearer, please do me the kindness. Please show me hesed to mention me to Pharaoh and so get me out of this house. So Abimelech to Abraham, 
where Abraham was in a position of power, Joseph to the cupbearer, where the cupbearer had Joseph's life in his hands. To say that, please show me hesed, is basically a, a display of an earnest petition. So Jacob is telling Joseph, put your hand under my thigh, swear to me. But then he also says, deal kindly with me, show me hesed, honor my petition. And then he gives the actual request. Read with me, he says, do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. I had alluded to you in our previous study that I think that Jacob knew very well that God had promised Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, that the nation, his descendants, will be in some sort of captivity for 400 years. And I think now that he's been in Egypt for 17 years, I think he knew in his mind that there was a good chance that them being in Goshen, in the land of Egypt, was going to be a fulfillment of that promise. So Jacob didn't want to wait 400 years. He knew he was going to die soon. And to show that what his hope was, was with the covenantal promises of God made through Abraham, Isaac, and now himself, that he is a sojourner. The, the, he, he doesn't belong in Egypt. They belong back in the land that was promised to them. And he wants to be buried in Canaan with his father, with his grandfather, and we'll soon learn that it's also going to be with his first wife, Leah. And so what does Joseph do? Joseph immediately answers, I will do as you have said. And that is a common wording to say, I accept the oath. I will swear by the oath. But Jacob wasn't convinced. He said, yet again, swear to me. And it says that Joseph swore to him. And notice the final sentence in this chapter. It reads, then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. The Septuagint in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 21 changes the word bed to staff. But I think that's just a trivial detail. The main point here is that Jacob bows down to Joseph. And perhaps this is a final fulfillment of Joseph's dream back in chapter 37. Remember, Joseph had the dream, and the interpretation seemed to be that every member of his family would bow down and prostrate themselves before Joseph. Joseph's brothers did it, and in a sense, they figuratively represented Jacob. But we see here that Jacob, Israel, bows down to Joseph. So we see God blessing Israel. We see Israel beseeching Joseph. Now we see 
in this third section that Israel blesses Joseph. Even though we just see that he offers this position of prostration to Joseph, Israel now resumes his position of superiority. We had learned that it is the superior that blesses the inferior, not the other way around. And so we see this to be the case here as we start chapter 48. And in the first verse it reads, after this, so this implies that some time has elapsed between the end of chapter 47 and chapter 48. So after this, Joseph learns that his father is ill. And so Joseph quickly brings his two sons. And when Joseph arrives, Jacob in verse three and four, he reminds Joseph that God had appeared to him at Luz and had blessed him. And notice some of the things that he says uh, in verse four. He reminds Joseph that, that God told him that I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make you a company of peoples and I will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And then what Jacob does next seems quite unexpected. In verse five and six, he promotes Ephraim and Manasseh as joint heirs with his other sons. So remember, Jacob has 12 sons. And at this point, we know that Joseph has two named sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so what Jacob is doing is he is promoting Manasseh and Ephraim. I'm not going to look at you as my grandsons. I'm adopting you. I'm, I'm, I'm elevating you to the level of sonship. Now, this has a few implications. But during the time of the ancient Near East, especially with the Hebrews, with these patriarchs, that in general, the birthright, as we had reviewed when we talked about Jacob and Esau, the birthright generally meant that the firstborn or the preeminent one would be given a double portion. And so this is almost like an indirect way of giving that double portion to Joseph by way of elevating Manasseh and Ephraim. That to Joseph, you're not just gonna get one portion, you're gonna get a double portion, but I'm gonna do it perhaps in a diplomatic way, in a way that exalts and elevates everyone. And so we see in verse five and six that Jacob promotes Joseph's two sons. And then he makes this interesting topic change. He, he still thinks about Rachel. In verse 7, he, he, he recounts the death and burial of his wife, Rachel. And I think this is significant for at least a couple of reasons. The first is obviously that even so many years later, the death of his wife, Rachel, is still at times forefront in, in Jacob's mind. But secondly, we get this picture that her burial, the way that it happened, was less than ideal. Abraham had bought that plot of land 
those caves at Metpella, and that was going to be the burial site of him, his wife, and presumably the allowance for their future family. Everyone else was buried there, but Rachel was not. It wasn't just the, the loss of Rachel during the childbirth of, of Benjamin, but the way that it happened, the way that it was so sudden, and that they basically buried her, not even exactly in the city of, of, of Bethlehem, but kind of on their way there. So basically, they, they were buried in the middle of nowhere. You know, a lot of times, if you were at war and someone in your party gets killed, occasionally, if it's at all possible, you may grab the body and allow for some sort of proper burial. But there are times when, when the battle is just too great and you just have to leave the body there and move on. Maybe dig a pit and just throw the body in, if at that. And so that's almost in a sense of what happens with Rachel. And so this is still something that's painful to Jacob's mind. And so you can understand then that the idea of the request for the type of burial that Jacob wanted was very important to him. Well, we see then in verse 8 and 9 that Joseph brings his two sons, and, and Jacob sees the two sons, and he offers to bless them. And now you see here, at the end of Jacob's life, he's showing immense emotion. It says in verse 10 that Jacob kisses them, and he embraces them. This is really the first time this late in Jacob's life that we see him displaying this type of outburst of emotion. You remember even when, when Jacob had his reunion with Joseph, the scripture read that Joseph was bawling and weeping, but it didn't give that similar expression of Jacob. But here we see Jacob nearing the end of his life, completely softened. He has this outburst of emotion. He kisses them, embraces them. And he says in verse 11, I never expected to see your face, Joseph. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. The word offspring is, again, a similar word that we had encountered before. It's the Hebrew word Sarah, which means seed. Remember, we had talked about that Sarah is a collective singular. Remember that verb, that word? So what, what Jacob is telling Joseph is that I never expected that I was going to see your offspring, your seed. And as a consequence, he lets out this outburst of emotion. And if you even look at verse 12, what did Joseph have to do? It was Joseph that actually removes his sons away from his father. And then in a show of deference, at the end of 47, it was Jacob bowing down to Joseph. Now we see here that it is Joseph now that bows himself down with his face to the earth in the presence of his father, Jacob. At this time, Joseph was still the second in command of Egypt, but he shows his honor, he shows his deference to his father. So 
even though Jacob here is desiring to bless Joseph's two sons by elevating them to the position of sonship, he is essentially blessing Joseph and giving Joseph a double portion. Well, let's look at this final section of this chapter. This final section where we will see that Israel encourages Joseph. Well, there's something very strange that happens first, though. So in verse 13 and 14, we see the description of Joseph now, even though he had just removed his two sons from, uh, from, from his father. Joseph now formally presents his two sons for the purpose of this formal blessing. So he leads uh, Ephraim with his right hand uh, towards Jacob's left hand, and he takes Manasseh in his left hand, directing towards Jacob's right hand. Now, the stark, the stark contrast or irony, I, I should better say, is that back in Genesis 27, you remember that Isaac's eyesight was dim, and in a similar way, Jacob's eyesight is described as dim. But Jacob was completely sober. He knew exactly what was going on. And so what does Jacob do? He stretches his right hand and crosses it over, all right, to Ephraim. And he takes his left hand over to Manasseh. And he blesses them. Let's look at verse 15. Because as I, I look at this verse, it, it's such a precious two verses. And even this week, every time I look at this, it, it drives me to tears. And let me explain. Verse 15, it says that he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. So what Jacob is about to do is he's going to describe God in three ways. The first is that God is self-existent. In verse 15, he writes, it's the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. That Joseph, I'm about to give a blessing and this blessing comes from God. And this God that we have is self-existent. He existed before you and I. He even existed before our fathers and grandfathers. He is self-existent. He is eternal. It is this God that is about to be blessing you and your, your sons. So God is self-existent. But look what he says next. He says not only is God self-existent, but that God is a shepherd. God is a shepherd. Look at verse 15 again. He blesses Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Get the scene. I get emphasized so many times in the last month that shepherds are an abomination to the people and to the land of Egypt. Jacob, not only was he a shepherd, 
but he came from a line of shepherds. His father was a shepherd. His grandfather was a shepherd. Not only was he a career shepherd, but he knew shepherding for several generations. I, I'm a first-generation doctor. I'm the first doctor that I'm aware of, certainly in my immediate family. But honestly, I didn't really know what being a doctor was going to be. I didn't know what I was signing up for until <laughs> several years into it. And sometimes I think if I had known everything, maybe I would have chosen a different path. <laughs> but Jacob knew just about everything about shepherding. It was his life. And it's not necessarily an honorable life. And he describes God. God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Do you get the significance of this? This is the first time in scripture that God is compared to a shepherd. It is not the Gospel of John. It is not Psalm 23. It is Genesis 48. And Jacob not only describes God as a shepherd, but he says that this God that we have, this God who is my God, has been my shepherd my entire life. He has been my lifelong shepherd. Jacob knew what being a shepherd was. The sheep, the livestock were everything. You lose your sheep, you lose your entire livelihood. Jacob understood that being a shepherd meant that the shepherd will lay down his life for his sheep. And he calls God shepherd. It's interesting, this is not an accident. Jacob will refer to God as shepherd a second time in the next chapter. God is self-existent. He is the shepherd. And thirdly, God is redeemer. Look at verse 16. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. You all understand what it means to redeem something, right? So if we are in debt, like the Egyptians were indebted to Egypt, to Pharaoh, to redeem is to pay off that debt and to redeem you. We had talked about this. We are twice gods. We were created by him and we were redeemed by him. We are twice his. And Jacob understood this. My God is self-existent. My God is a shepherd. My God is redeemer. This is the God that will bless you, Joseph. And then after this introduction of his God, he, he just simply says, bless the boys. God, bless these boys. And in them, let my name be carried on. 
and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And notice Joseph's response. Joseph apparently probably didn't understand necessarily the implications of all of this. His, he was focused on, why is my dad crossing his arms? And so we see here Joseph is actually displeased with his father, and he tries to redirect his father's hands. He says, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. But notice, I mean, Jacob doesn't hear severely chide Joseph, but he does gently refuse, and he says, he will also be great, but nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring, his Sarah, shall become a multitude of nations. And so Jacob blesses Joseph's sons. He says, God makes you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. But let's look at the final two verses in this chapter. And this is Jacob's final private words of encouragement to Joseph. Starting in verse 21, it reads, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you. Let's follow the progression. Back in Genesis chapter 28, remember, Joseph was on his way to Padamaran. He had nothing except his staff. We had joke, he didn't even have a pillow. He had to lay his head on a rock. And God appeared to Jacob. And he said to Jacob at that time, at the start of this big adventure, I am with you and will keep you. A verb that's commonly used of a shepherd keeping his sheep. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And then Joseph, more than 20 years later, he leaves Laban, now with, with, with wife, household, children, and he says in Genesis chapter 31, verse 5, Jacob says, The God of my father has been with me. So he was on his way to Padamaran, and God tells him, I will be with you. I will keep you wherever you go. 20 years later, Jacob acknowledges that God was true to his word. God has been with me. And you realize that his 20 years wasn't all bliss, was it? There was a lot of hardship. And remember, when, when Jacob met Pharaoh, he told Pharaoh, I think in an honest way, that, to paraphrase his words, I've lived a difficult life. My life was so much more filled with trials than my father, my grandfather, I will likely not live as long. My, my life is, yeah, it, more painful than that of my predecessors. 
But Jacob still believed that amidst all that, that God had been with him. It reminds me of Job. I think all of you are familiar with the story of Job. You can read in Job chapter 1 that in a matter of moments, Job lost everything. He lost his livestock. People, you know, these bandits came and pillaged all his possessions. He lost all his children. Remember, the blessing during the time of the patriarchs, be fruitful and multiply. And he loses all his children. And yet Job was able to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in fact, throughout the book of Job, Job never doubted whether or not God was there. The only doubt he had was he wanted to talk with God and get an explanation, and he had questions. He was ready to defend himself. But he never doubted the presence, even the character of God. So Jacob, at the start of his life, he receives the promise from God. God told him, I will be with you. I will keep you wherever you go. And and now Jacob, toward the end of his life, acknowledges that, yes, God has been with me. That now sets the context for what he says to Joseph. This same God who is self-existent, who is shepherd, who is redeemer, who has been with me all my life, this God will be with you. You remember when our Lord Jesus Christ, he obviously didn't die a second death after he was resurrected. He walked around uh, and spoke with a lot of people for 40 days, and it's recorded at the end of Matthew. Uh, Before his ascension, he gives that great commission to his disciples and followers. He tells them, all authority has been given to me, Now you make disciples, go, baptize, teach. But what were his final words? Lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. The greatest final encouragement our Lord Jesus Christ gave as he ascended was that I will be with you. And so Jacob encourages Joseph and says, God will be with you. He continues back in verse 21. Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. And then he adds this final personal note that I'm even going to give you this one mountain slope that I took from the hands of the Amorites. There's a little bit of debate as to what this is about. So we didn't study this together as a group, but in Genesis 33, we know that Jacob purchases a plot of land in Shechem. And we also know in Genesis 34 that Joseph's or Jacob's two sons, uh, Simeon and Levi, 
has that mass murder of the people of Shechem and plundered and accumulated all of those possessions. So maybe that's what Jacob is talking about. Some people think that maybe Jacob is speaking prophetically, that, you know, 400 years later, you know, when all of you go to Canaan and conquer everyone in Canaan, then we will make sure we'll carve out a piece of land for your descendants. It's hard to say exactly what's the truth or the the best interpretation, but let me read to you in Joshua chapter 24, verse 32. It reads, As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. So perhaps that was the fulfillment of what Jacob wanted to give to Joseph, his, his treasured son of Rachel. Well, let me conclude. I had told you guys that, that Jonathan Edwards, according to one biographer, that he had thought about, he had prepared to die for his entire life. And in January 1758, Jonathan Edwards was invited and asked to be the next president of Princeton University. And so he left behind his wife and most of his children at Stockbridge, and he set for Princeton accompanied by two daughters. And on February 16th, Edwards was installed as president of Princeton University. And at this time, not only did he see it as a golden opportunity to minister and to invest in the lives of the next generation of people, especially theologians and pastors, but he sought that as an opportunity for him to continue his writings. And he had several major writing projects that he had set out to do. Now, we have COVID these last two to three years, but in the 1750s, the pandemic that was relevant was smallpox. And Jonathan Edwards was a champion of modern medicine. And a few months beforehand, he had almost lost one of his daughters to smallpox. And so he had asked a prestigious doctor to inoculate him and his family with a small amount of smallpox. Because the idea was that if you would be inoculated with, in this case, smallpox in such a small amount, it wouldn't make you terribly sick, but it would amount an immune response, a first-generation vaccine. And so on February 23rd, sure enough, a doctor at Jonathan Edwards' instruction inoculated him and his, his two daughters and their children with a small amount of smallpox. And over the next few days, his daughter and perhaps one or two young grandchildren got a few minor symptoms but quickly recovered. But a few days later, Jonathan Edwards noticed smallpox developing in the roof of his mouth and his throat. 
And within days, his throat was so painful, he couldn't swallow, he couldn't eat or even drink. And day by day, he got weaker, and he realized that he was at the end of his life. And so he quickly called for Lucy, his daughter, summoning her because he was about to utter his final words. And his daughter astutely runs and finds paper and pen to pen these words. It seems to me to be the will of God that I might shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. And I hope she will be supported under so great a trial and submit cheerfully to the will of God. But listen to this. And as to my children, you are now like to be left fatherless, which I hope will be an inducement to you all to seek a father who will never fail you. He basically paraphrased what Jacob had said to Joseph. God will be with you. That when I die, it actually shouldn't be count as a loss, either for me or for you. Because even if I'm not here, God will be with you. You know, after Abraham, God remained with Isaac. And after Isaac, there was Jacob. After Jacob, Joseph. Joseph, Ephraim, Manasseh. I'll ask you guys the question one more time. What will be the final words you share with your children? To the next generation, perhaps you and I can borrow the words Jacob shared with Joseph. Just as God has been with me, God will be with you. Let's pray. Father, sometimes we forget that you've always been there. When, when we fail, when we're sick, when this world is seemingly falling apart, it's so easy to forget or to not trust that you have always been there. Father, I pray that you'll help us to encourage one another that we don't need to lose sight of that. You have been there. You have always been there. You will continue to be with us. You will keep us. You who are self-existent, our good shepherd, our redeemer. And I pray, who knows, one Sunday might be our last. I pray that you will help us, whether it's with our children or if we don't have children, it's with some younger person around us that we do not cease to encourage and remind one another that you will be with us. Father, I thank you so much for your precious word and that these events are nearly 4,000 years old, and yet it has direct relevance to us because you are the same God yesterday as you are today. And 
So I pray, Father, that you will help us to take these words to heart and that we'll continue to live this life for you wholeheartedly for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.